Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, where we continue our study through the parables of Jesus in Matthew 13, and our greater study through the whole gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 13 can be found on page 819 in those black Bibles around you. 13 is that larger chapter number, and then we're going to focus on verse 51 to the end of the chapter. Those are the little numbers This is the fifth sermon through this chapter of Matthew's Gospel, and we started this series by explaining and discussing what is a parable. Why did Jesus use them? And four weeks ago, we considered that a parable is not a simple illustration to make a deep theological truth. It can have that function, but that's not the reason why Jesus used them. It's quite clear from this chapter that parables were used as riddles. They were used as an act of judgment against people who would not listen or receive Jesus. So instead of telling them plainly and clearly what he was doing on the earth, he started speaking in code or riddles. And so we're going to look at one final riddle, one final parable that illustrates the kingdom, and we'll see that in verse 52. And then we're going to conclude this chapter by seeing a very strange occurrence when Jesus returns home to Nazareth. So to get us started, I want to throw out a couple riddles that I think summarize what's going on in this passage. Everything that is new is old. And everything that is old is now new. If you have ears to hear, let them hear. That's the first section that we're going to read about. In the second section, we're going to see the man who is rejected was accepted. And even though we rejected and will be rejected, we can be accepted. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I'm going to read God's word now, and hopefully these riddles will make sense as we work through this text. Starting in verse 51, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new And what is old? And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not this mother, his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household 
And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Behind me on the screen, you should see two questions that will, I think, help you guide our way through this text. Question one. This is a question from Jesus, and it's stated plainly right there in verse 51. Do you understand? Have you understood, he says to his disciples? Question two. This is the second half of the text where Jesus goes back to Nazareth. This is a question for Jesus, for all of those in Jesus' hometown. And they're basically asking, if I were to sum it all up, who do you think you are? So let's go with question one. A question from Jesus. Do you understand? Have you understood all these things? And I think this is intentionally put here by Matthew as he's organizing this gospel account He wants, by the end of chapter 13, for you, the reader, you, the listener, you here today at Embassy Church, do you understand? The word understand is actually two words put together, and that's what it means, to put something together. Stuff is being put together when you understand. It's it's kind of all out there, the riddles of the parables. Wait, what was that? Oh, I put it together. That's understanding. Have you put them together? Have you understood what Jesus has been saying all through these parables? Because that's what he says. Do you understand these things? What things, Jesus? What things should I be putting together? The parables. Look back in chapter 15 with me and look at verses 13 to 15 and notice if you see the word understand a few times. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Do you see why parables are not just immediately obvious on the surface? Jesus is saying, this is why I speak to them in these riddle-like parables, so that they would not understand because they have not been listening and they're rejecting me. If you read the chapter before, chapter 13, chapter 12, The people around Jesus have called him a prince of Satan. They have heard the message clearly, and they said, you look like you're from Satan's family. I don't think they got it, okay? That's one simple way to understand that they're not getting the message, so Jesus is going to change the message, not the content of it, but the delivery mode is now parables to those that do not understand. So Jesus turns to his disciples and say, do you understand? Because to you it has been given the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. To you it has been given the knowledge and the understanding of the kingdom of God. That's in verse 11 if you see Jesus telling them why he is speaking to them in parables. So that you will know the secrets of the kingdom, but to them they will not know. And that's why Jesus wants them to understand. He is giving them the knowledge and the explanation. If you might remember in the chapter of the parables, you've got on the one hand Jesus speaking a parable to large crowds of people, and it doesn't make a lot of sense. And then he just leaves. 
And after he leaves, the disciples ask, what was that about? Why? Why are you speaking in parables? And he's like, let me tell you and help you understand what I was saying, what it, the purpose of the parables was. And so then he's asking now, do you get it? Do you get that Jesus is telling the whole story of Israel and that the old covenant age is ending and the new age has dawned? Do you get it? Do you get that I'm the long-awaited Messiah? Do you get it that I am the word of God, the seed that is planted in the ground that will bear a hundred times over? Do you get it and do you understand that God's kingdom is often small, silent, and subtle, but God is always working when you don't even realize it? Like a small leaven in a 60-pound ball of dough. I don't know if any of you ladies out there have baked with 60 pounds of dough, but that's a large piece of dough. I heard that it could feed a whole village. But a small little leaven works silently, subtly, quietly, and God's at work sometimes when you don't see it. Do you get it? That Jesus is a treasure and he is worth selling everything on this earth because this treasure in heaven is far greater than anything you could ever accumulate on the earth. Do you get it? He's asking after all of these parables, can you put it all together? Do you get that it's me? It's all about me. It's always been about me. I'm the one you've been waiting for. And they say, yes. And I believe they're actually telling the truth. Jesus, we get it. You're it. You're the treasure. Now, later on in chapter 15, if we read ahead, we'll realize that at one point he's going to say, why are you so dull? So somewhere between them getting it and not getting it, they really are, okay? And, and that's kind of true for all of us, isn't it? Somewhere in between getting it, I think we got it. Jesus is the treasure. Do we? I don't think we really got it. And there's a lot more to get. We're dull. We're slow. And so Jesus says that if you then really get it, you've really put it together, you are a trained Scribe. Do you see that in our text? Look at verse 52. And he said to them, therefore, because you said yes, that means you are now a trained scribe for the kingdom of heaven. The word scribe is the normal word used for the professional Bible teachers for the nation of Israel, the scholars of Jesus' day. Jesus is calling these no-name fishermen these no-name tax collectors, these dudes that did not go to a great school, did not get a great education, were not the best of the best of the Torah school in the synagogue. That wasn't these guys. And he's saying, you are the new scribes that have been trained. It's actually the word mathetes. It's discipled. You have been discipled in the ways of the kingdom of heaven. And you're now going to be the new scribes in the kingdom do you realize that that's kind of offensive to the current scribes? Imagine you have spent your whole life and you've trained your whole life in a certain position and then some no-name young punk kind of comes into the work and says, yep, he's got your job now. He doesn't even know what he's doing. Oh, he knows far more than you do. That's what that would have felt like for the nation of Israel and the current scribes that are hearing Jesus say, these disciples are now the new scribes that are trained and equipped for the kingdom of heaven. It reminds me in Acts chapter 4, right after Jesus leaves the earth, his new scribes are preaching and teaching the Bible, and they get arrested. And as they're standing before the courtroom proceedings, this statement is made. 
they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, and they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. That's it, friends. That's the secret. You do not need some sort of fancy education. You need Jesus. And if you have Jesus, no matter what sort of schooling you went to, no matter what your background is, no matter where you're from, whether you're from Illinois or Alabama, no matter how smart you think you are, you being with Jesus makes you powerfully a scribe to the world. The foolish things of the world will shame the wise men and women, the learned scholars in their Ivy League towers looking down and telling us that the Bible's really not the Word of God, telling us that Jesus didn't really rise again from the dead. They might be able to read the Bible frontwards and backwards, have it memorized, know it in five different languages, but they do not know the Christ that you know. And therefore, you are a greater scribe than any of them. This is what Jesus is talking about. It's not about being smart. It's about receiving him. So have you received him? Have you put it together that the whole Bible is about Jesus? And if you are that kind of scribe that has sat with and sat under the teaching of Jesus and received who he is, Jesus describes you like this. You are a master of a house, a head of a house, or a landowner. This is a phrase always used by Jesus or in the Gospels to say somebody who has a great wealth and they are dispensing that wealth to all the people that live in their household, whether it's their family members, their children. In this current day, they would have had slaves, not saying we're condoning slavery, but it's just the world they lived in. And what we're saying is that there would have been a wealthy house master, house landowner, head of a house. And Jesus says that if you are one of these scribes, then you are then one of these wealthy landowners. And you are going to bring out of your storehouse, your treasure chest, new and old treasures. Again, I think this is an indictment on the scribes of Jesus' day. The scribes of Jesus' day only had old treasures. All they knew was the Jewish Torah, the first half of your Bible, what we call the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. But Jesus' disciples have the old and the new. Their treasure is the Word of God, and they're going to bring out of this wealth of knowledge that they have, this wealth of understanding, this wealth of putting together their life and their world, and it's all going to make sense because they know who Jesus is. And therefore, the old becomes new, and the new becomes old. That's the riddle. Old things are now new. And new things are now old. What do we mean by that? The Old Testament is a whole book that becomes brand new when you realize, oh, it was about Jesus. The whole thing. Page one, page two, page three. The whole Old Testament was pointing us toward Jesus. And when that flicks on in your mind and in your heart, you realize, I got a whole new book to read. A whole new book. The old becomes new, and now the new becomes old. It's not a brand new religion. It's a fulfillment of the whole religion of Israel. We do not disconnect, or as some pastor has recently said, unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. May it never be. The New Testament is so deeply rooted in the old that we must realize that it is not new as if it's a whole new start. It is a whole new beginning that is fulfilling everything that God promised. I love that little phrase Paul says, every single promise in the Old Testament finds its yes 
and it's amen in Jesus Christ. The old has become new, and the new has become old. Do you get that? Do you understand that that is what training under Jesus creates? New and old treasures. If you would like to be trained and discipled, I have two options for you to take away right now to sign up for something that will be helpful for you putting the whole Bible together and seeing it's about Jesus. Two options. Option one, for those of you that will be here this fall, Embassy Church has an Old Testament survey class. We worked through the first half, and we just finished this last couple weeks, and we're going to do the second half. It is free. The elders and pastors of Embassy Church teach this. If you ask anybody that took the class, I think they will tell you it was a rich feast of God's Word. We meet on Saturday mornings. We meet 8 a.m. till 10, and we're going to read the Old Testament. It's going to be a whole brand new book and see it in light of Jesus Christ. That's option number one. Now, I know we got a lot of friends that are not going to be able to make that class. You're like, I'm from Alabama, and I'd like to learn about Jesus. And so for all of us, whether we are from Illinois or Alabama, I want to give you a resource that I think is fantastic if you have not heard about it. It is printed in this giant coffee table book. This is called The Bible Project. And it is a YouTube channel that you can just watch for free on YouTube, or you can buy this rather expensive large coffee table book. But this book covers every single book of the Bible with beautiful illustrations giving you the overview of how every single story is pointing to Jesus. And it goes through every single book of the Bible. And you just look through this, and it is amazing artwork. It is excellent commentary, and this is very, very good Bible teaching. And you can watch all of these videos for free on YouTube, and you can get all of those posters and download them on the Bible Project website. I don't work for them. I just think it is a fantastic resource, and they give all of their stuff for free except that book. It costs a few dollars. But these resources will help put the whole Bible together as one unified story that leads to Jesus. Have you put that together yet? Are you a disciple of the kingdom, a trained scribe? If so, Jesus says you're like a master of a house who has a treasure chest. And you know what you're supposed to do with that treasure? What does the text say? Look at it for yourself. What does Jesus say the master of the house is supposed to do with his treasure? Somebody say it to me. Bring it out. I didn't hear anybody. Did you see that in the text? Bring out the treasure. It doesn't stay in the house. It doesn't stay in the treasure chest. It doesn't stay in the back room. It's not a private teaching. This is to be shared liberally. In fact, it's not the word that you would normally use for sharing and bringing out. It's the word for throwing stuff. He says, just throw that treasure out. You just get this picture of some guy that's got a treasure chest, and he's just launching coins and crowns and saying, I got a treasure, and I'm sharing it liberally. That's what we do with the Word of God. We do not keep it for ourselves. We share it. We bring it out. We throw it around all over the place. This passage then is about making disciples and sharing the good news of the treasure of God's Word. So what a great week to be talking about going out and just sharing the treasure of Jesus all over Woodstock. Amen? Or how about Palatine? 
Thank you, all of the visitors from Alabama. Your presence here with us is an encouragement, I hope, to every single Embassy Church member that we should devote our time and energy throughout the summer and use vacation days to go share and spread the treasure of God's Word. It is too good to keep in. When we keep it in, we die. It's like a river that has a stopping point and it all gets bottled up in one spot and it all starts to die. Do you want to be a dead-end cul-de-sac or do you want to be a river with water that's fresh flowing through you like a conduit to bless other people? Churches and individual Christians die when they hold it in, when they think about themselves, when they think that their existence on this earth is about them being happy. Happiness comes when you give. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Are you going to go out And are you going to share liberally the message of Jesus and the treasure that he has given you in the whole Bible? My friends from Alabama, I want you to know that I am very confident in the team of people that you are leaving behind when you leave. That they will do their very best to give discipleship focus centered around Jesus and work as hard as they possibly can to create a church that is centered on the gospel that is centered on making disciples who are trained and equipped scribes that see that the entire Bible is about Jesus. And I hope that we will do this in our neighborhood too, Embassy Church members, with our own family in our hometown. In fact, I was thinking, it is sometimes easier to get psyched up to go on a trip and do missions work in another place because, you know, you might get rejected when you give people the message and this treasure. They don't see it as a treasure. And it's really sad. It's heartbreaking. It's sad to tell somebody, this is the best gift I could possibly give you, and they say, no thanks. It hurts. It breaks my heart. It's even harder when those are your own family members or the people in your own house. And so, Embassy, I want to really challenge us. Our friends from Alabama are are giving us a great encouragement to give our time and energy to share the treasure, right? Amen? But the real calling is when they come home too, right? That's why we were praying for them downstairs. This is not just a once out of the summer, once out of the year, we're going to go do it for Jesus. The rest of the year is about us. Sit back. We need to be the kind of people that live this out every day. With our households, with our hometowns, where the stakes are higher, where the disgrace and the shame of being rejected by our closest friends and family members and our next door neighbors hurts and stings even more. But that's exactly what happened to Jesus. And he he will never ask you to do something that he hasn't first experienced. And he has already walked that road down Calvary, and he was first on the way to that road, rejected by his household and family members. Which brings us to our second question, a question for Jesus. Jesus goes back home, and they're asking, Jesus, who do you think you are? Let me read the text again one more time, starting in verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and those mighty, these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? 
and they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Our passage in this second half of it, starting in verse 53, begins with a common phrase used throughout Matthew's gospel. The phrase, and Jesus had finished these parables. The first half of that, if you take the word parable off, that phrase is used at every finishing last little tagline of Jesus' main teaching section. So if you go to the end of chapter 7 after the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus finished these sayings. You go to the end of chapter 10, and Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mission, and he talks about sending his disciples out. It's going to say, and Jesus finished these sayings. And then now, at the end of a long section of teaching, we have that phrase again. It happens every single time there's a long section of teaching. It's one of the reasons why Matthew's gospel is commonly believed to be a five-part book that mirrors the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. That's because Matthew wants you to get the Old Testament's about Jesus. It's the new Torah. It's the new Moses that goes onto a mountain, and he teaches his disciples, and he comes down, and he says, I did not just meet with God. I am God. So, That's the structure of the book of Matthew in a quick nutshell. And it says that after he finished these parables, he then left Capernaum and he went to Nazareth, his hometown. It doesn't say Nazareth, but that's where we know his hometown was. And so he left the Sea of Galilee area and he goes out further in the hill country of Nazareth and he teaches in their synagogue. If you're not familiar, a synagogue is a place of learning. It's like a Jewish uh, day school for boys and girls to teach them the Hebrew Bible and, and teach them their Greek Bibles if they know Greek, and it's to teach them the ways of Judaism. And so they would have worship services on their Sabbath day, and they would have lessons all week long. And so Jesus teaches there because he is also a rabbi. He is also a master teacher of God's Word. And it says that after they heard him, they were astonished, amazed, struck with panic, at a loss for words. And then they ask a series of questions. And as I said, it could be basically summed up. Wait, who do you think you are? Is this not the son of a carpenter? Could also be translated in the broader word. Technon means craftsman. There's arguments made that Jesus actually wasn't the son of a carpenter. I hope that doesn't burst anybody's bubbles but that he could have been the son of a stonemason or just a builder or a worker. It's just a general word. It's not the actual word for craftsmen working with wood, but that doesn't really matter. The point is, hey, we know who you are. You're not the son of a rabbi. You're not the son of some scribe. You're not the son of some elite person in the Jewish faith. Who do you think you are? Don't we know his mom? His mom's Mary. She's nothing. When she offered Jesus at the temple, what did she bring? Big fattened calf, big huge animal? No, two turtle doves because she was poor. Doesn't he have four brothers and at least two sisters? And we know all of them? Which, by the way, is a little side parenthesis. That means that Jesus was in a family with seven kids at the minimum, maybe more. If there was three or four or five sisters, it's just the plural for sisters. But at least two, right? That's what plural means. So there's at least two girls and then maybe more. So seven Why that little parenthesis? Because go ask your Catholic friends. I thought they teach that Mary stayed a virgin. Where'd these kids come from? (laughs) It's a good question. 
Jesus was in a family, and he had brothers and sisters. I'm still trying to figure out who these kids are if Mary remained a virgin her whole life. When it's all said and done, they're offended. It's the word scandalon, scandalized. They're stumbling over Jesus. Look down at chapter 13, verse 21, if you would. 13, verse 21. This is Jesus' explanation of the parable of the sower. And I'm going to start in verse 20, and he says, As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet, he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he stumbles. He's scandalized. I think Matthew and Jesus are teaching us here that Jesus' closest friends and family are living out the parable of the sower. And some people might have immediately been astonished, but ultimately they're stumbling. Jesus says that a prophet is not without honor. It's a double negative. He's saying a prophet always is honored. He's always receiving honor except in one place, when he's home. Like Ezekiel that we read earlier in Ezekiel chapter 3, you're going to go preach and they're not going to listen to you. Or Jeremiah when he comes back home and the priests of his hometown want to arrest Jeremiah for preaching God's word. So Jesus would not do any more miracles of healing and bringing salvation because it says they would not believe in him. They had unbelief. Friends, what could we learn from this last little section of our passage? I think three simple things. First, your friends and family can often be the hardest to share with because you so desperately and badly want their respect and honor. But even Jesus didn't get it. At least not initially. And therefore, to be a follower of Christ sometimes, if not oftentimes, means losing friends and family members who disrespect you because of your commitment to Jesus. Second, and this point is sobering. These friends and family members in Nazareth were astonished. But we leave this story with them stumbling, scandalized. You could be astonished at the teachings and the miracles of Jesus. You could be jaw-dropped, gazing in awe, in wonder, and not really believe. Friends, sink, let that sink in. Jesus could seem to you as astonishing. Wow, that's impressive. And there be no genuine faith. No true, lasting faith. A lot of people, they like the effects of what the kingdom of Christ brings, but they don't want Jesus as the king. In fact, I would describe the majority of the United States of America, especially those that don't call themselves Christians, knowingly non-Christian people, they like what Christianity has brought them in terms of all the benefits that they now have in the United States because of the Christians who brought Christianity to the United States. They like the America that they have. They don't realize it came from their King Jesus. 
So they love the kingdom, they hate the king. That is the state of our post-Christian environment that we live in, especially here in Illinois. I don't know what it's like in Alabama, but here in Illinois, we've got a lot of folks that love the general kingdom, but they don't want the king. Hospitals, why do all of them have Christian names or a lot of them on them? Because Christians started hospitals. A lot of people love hospitals. They don't want the king. Education. How come so many of our greatest institutions and all our Ivy League schools were started by Christians? They don't like the king. And we could go on and on and on. Our society is deeply affected by the Christians who established this nation. They love the kingdom and the aspects that it can bring. They do not want the king. Is that you, my friend? Are you sure that you do not go to church and you're astonished and it gives you some warm feelings inside, but at the end of the day, Christ is not your king? For the good of your soul, for all of eternity, I pray that we will take that point very, very seriously. Thirdly, Jesus was and is right now fully human. One of the things that struck me about this passage is that these people in his hometown are tripping over his humanity. He's just another guy. And guess what? That's partially true. He is just another guy, another human being, fully human, 100% human. But he's not just another guy. He's one of us, fully human, but he's not only human, fully God. Where else would he do miracles and have mighty wisdom? The question's quite rhetorical, isn't it? Where were you doing these mighty works? Well, the only other possible answer is Satan, and he's been accused of that already. The only other possible explanation is God. He has the fullness of God's power in him. Do you, my friend, believe that Jesus is right now fully human? Right now. We did not just have Easter once a year where we celebrate he rose again from the dead and he is risen. He is risen. Indeed. That's every Sunday, friends. Every single Sunday, we should be acknowledging that Jesus is risen. He has conquered the grave. He is alive, and he is a human being, and he comes back to return and restore all humanity for all that would trust in him and believe in him and say, not only is he awesome and it astounds me, but he is my Lord and my master. This is the preciousness of the treasure. Do you get it? And has it gotten you? Have you put it all together? I want to close with this final quote. It's called The Preciousness of Christ. It's behind me on the screen. It's from Octavius Winslow. This guy was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon, if you ever heard of him, in the England, um, over in England when he was preaching. And this gripped me, this got me about the preciousness of our Savior Jesus. So follow along as I read. I see him, exclaims the believer, to be exactly the Christ I need. His fullness meets my emptiness. His blood cleanses my guilt. His grace is greater than all my sin. His patience bears with all my inadequacies. His gentleness cares for me in my weakness. His love produces my obedience. His sympathy soothes my sorrows. His beauty stops me in my tracks. He is just the Savior 
I need. And no words can describe his preciousness to my soul. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the treasure that is Jesus, the King, the Christ. He is just the Savior that we need. In every fashion that we could imagine it, he is all that we need and so much more. We want to confess, Father, that it was because of our sin that you held him there on the cross and poured out your wrath upon him and paid for all the sins of the world. We confess, God, that we too are sinners, that we too have rejected the Savior. We too have looked at him and we have stumbled over him. But no more, Father. We're praying that by your Holy Spirit you would give us new eyes to understand, new ears to hear, a new heart to live and obey for Christ. We're asking, God, that you would do this work in us and that as we receive the Lord's Supper, we would celebrate the new family that is the church with all kinds of scribes from all over the world, from every different tribe, tongue, and language. And we pray, God, that this week we would be faithful with the treasure. We would throw it all around. We would have people receive Christ this week. Lead us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.